Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But we're in the middle of winter, so there's no better time to read a book called The Road to Winter. It's by Mark Smith, and it's his first novel. So, Mark, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. It's good to be here. Now, my first question is, how can we get Steph to the microphone? Because (laughs) Steph's the publicity uh, rep from Text Publishing, and I've got a very serious question about Text Publishing, and Steph's in the corner, sort of no-no signalling. Come on. Come on up, because... (laughs) Steph, there's something very, well, strange, unusual, different as far as text goes with this book. Would you like to explain it to us? She's nodding. No. <laughs> because they've, they've offered, and there's a little circle on the front cover, guaranteed great read. Now, if Steph were prepared to say anything on air, I'd ask why uh, text have done this, uh, put on a guaranteed great read. If you buy this book uh, and don't like it, Text are going to give you their your money back. Yeah. That's I've I've never heard of text doing that before. They don't normally have. Well, nor have I. I as I said before, you know, no pressure on a first time author at all. But money back guarantee. Money back guarantee because it's a guaranteed good read, and therefore it's not really necessary because it is a good read. And if Steph were prepared to come to the microphone, she could tell you all about it and why marketing, uh, the marketing agenda behind that because it's really not necessary because if you pick up this book, you can't literally put it down. So um, let's get into the book then and we're going to sort of pace this gradually because we've got the whole half hour. Excellent. We can We can do all of this at our leisure. And who knows, you know, Steph may even get to the microphone eventually. She's there on her... Uh, phone sending messages about how good this interview is and, and mouthing words at me, some of them invective, but there you go. She's laughing. That, that laughter it's was a pretty good. easy job, this publicist job, isn't it? Yeah, I tell you what, you don't have along, to speak. Chaperone them in, sit in the corner. And not speak. <laughs> now, the novel is set in the fictional town called Anne Gowrie, and immediately what came to mind was Anglesey and Blair Gowrie. Uh, And I'll just give you a little sense of the background. It always feels good to be out in the water, looking back at the town and the ridge beyond it. Rowdy prowls up and down the beach, chasing seagulls and sniffing the wind for danger. The river mouth is my favourite wave, breaking hard and fast on the bar and barrelling all the way to the shore break. I get half a dozen good rides before the sky darkens again and I decide to make my way in. Rowdy's waiting in the shallows and he dances around my legs as we head back up to the platform. I change quickly, the cold wind biting at my skin, and stash my board and wetsuit. With the last of the light fading behind the next big storm head, we make our way back down into the tea trees, Rowdy running ahead of me, eager for the warmth of his blanket in the corner of the kitchen. Um, typical beach setting. Anne Gary? Anglesey Blair Gary? Yeah, look, I, I live on the west coast of Victoria. Funny, how, did, how, how could <laughs> we, I work We'd never have guessed, I know. Um, and, you know... It makes a lot of sense to to set uh, your novel in an area you're very familiar with, but it sort of crosses over as well because 
Uh, there is a really famous surf break called Angauri, which is spelt differently, A-N-G-O-U-R-I-E, up near Yamba on the north coast of New South Wales. Um, and when I was looking for a, a name for this fictional town, um, I wanted it to be somewhere that was really recognisable to readers. Uh, this could be any small coastal town on the Victorian coast, on the New South Wales coast, on the South Australian coast. Um, but I wanted, I wanted readers to be able to, to imagine that uh, the geography of the town that, that this, the action's taking place in, in their own heads as they were reading. Yeah, well, that, that makes it so familiar uh, to a lot of... Um, Australian readers. What about international readers, do you think? Would they have... Yeah, I think so. Uh, We know that we're blessed here in this country to have the the coastal landscape that we do and and the beaches that we do. But I think once you start mentioning, you know, those tracks leading down through the tea tree up to the platform, overlooking the beach, I think it's fairly generic. Uh, In winter, with the storm clouds rolling in, it's it's something you can picture in your mind. The main character we have is Finn, which is short for Finbar, and he likes surfing. So here we go again. I roll over the top of the first wave because I know the ones deeper in the set will be bigger and more powerful. The third one is peaking perfectly, so I paddle straight at it, pivot my board at the last second, dig a couple of big strokes in and feel the strength of it and carry me forwards. Now everything is in its place and the earth is back on its axis. There's no virus and no one trying to kill me, no orphan kid battling to stay alive. There's just this wave and me. It's travelled across thousands of kilometres of ocean just to get here and its journey has almost come to an end. I drop down the wave and lean in towards the face arching my body to drive off the bottom. The board responds and I feel the power again, like I've been hurled out of a slingshot. Out on the shoulder I dig my rail and plant my foot my back foot to cut back towards the white water. Dad always said that every surfer has a move that defines them. This is it, my signature. The cutback sends out an arc of spray that catches the morning light. You're not a surfer, are you? <laughs> How did you pick that up? <laughs> well, it's the broken finger. That I <laughs> yeah. Look, um, I, I've been surfing for a long time. I've been surfing for 40 years, and um, so it made sense again to you know to bring in something. They say write what you know, but I, I say write what you're passionate about, and I'm very passionate about that. I'm very passionate about that coastal environment. Um, the other thing is, though, that uh, I'm, I'm a great admirer of writers who are able to describe something that that most of their readers readers won't have done but to have that reader feel as though you know they can actually understand what it is that that this person is doing and i there are a couple of you know very familiar ones that would come to mind robert drew and tim winton who write about surfing really really well but if you think about it in australian literature even though we're a coastal dwelling people and we love the beach surfing itself doesn't appear that much in Australian literature. Really? The actual act of surfing. Um, there's a lot of body surfing and swimming in the ocean and things like that. But um, more recently, I think Claire Zorn has has written a novel that's got uh, that's got a surfer in it. But there are there are people who are surfers, but actually describing that what it feels like the in sensation. the water, the sensation yeah. of it and the physicality of it um, is a is a difficult thing to do as a writer because. Most people won't have been in that position, but you want them to understand what it feels like. Because it's one of the attributes of Finn, uh, one of his many that sort of defines him, that sort of independence and and freedom uh, of the surfing, Mm. and that's something that that Finbar is striving for. But you've also got 
Finn talking strangely. You ever made rabbit stew? I ask Rose. Rabshoe, she mimics me, smiling. What are you trying to do here? Uh, look, Finn has been living on his own for, for two winters, nearly three years by the time uh, surviving in this coastal town in Angari um, until Rose runs into town. Um, he, has, he has a sort of a speech impediment and um, he's, he's had it since he was a child. And what it does is when he meets Rose, obviously he wants to communicate. This is the first person, you know, the first female that he's seen in, in nearly three years. And he wants to be able to tell her his story, and, um, but he has difficulty doing it. He speaks in this voice that she describes as being growly. It's a growly mm, voice. Growly voice, yeah. Um, so he can communicate with his dog, Rowdy, really well. And I think this is partly where the growliness has come from. Um, but when he wants to tell her that story, there's this communication barrier between them. And, um, and what it does as a writer as well is that means that you don't have to dump his backstory you know, straight away. It comes out gradually as he gains confidence and, and in, you know, as Rose is able to start to understand because as what the, he's saying. Because as the narration's going, we, we understand him. Uh, that yeah. It's only when somebody mimics him that we yeah. find out about this the voice. speech impediment and yeah. this voice. Yeah. Just before we get into, because in that last extract I read, there's, uh, there were elements that we'll get into. But just to fill in the background then, we have Rose or Wada, Kaz, and Ramage, some of the other characters in this story. Rose and Kaz? Rose and Kaz are sisters, and they are what, what I've termed in the book Sileys. And Sileys are asylum seekers who, in this not-too-distant future Australia, have been bought in from detention centres offshore and basically sold as slaves at public auctions. And um, so... They were both sold to uh, to a couple of farmers, and uh, when the virus hit, they they took off on their own, escaped, and tried to get to the coast. Sorry, yeah. um, because we're sort of overlapping in terms yeah. of we've got the characters, um, and now we've got this futuristic setting uh, with this virus, which you are starting to allude to, mm-hmm. and this survival notion. So we perhaps need to get sure. into that as well. We're in the not too distant future, but things have happened. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important when you, you know, whether it's whether you call it post-apocalyptic, whether you call it dystopian, um, it's still got to be recognisable. There've got to be elements that a reader can recognise, and and really the the landscape has been changed by climate change. Uh, but not to such an extent that it's unrecognisable. Uh, the virus has come through and wiped out most of the population um, and has affected women much more much more than men. Um, hence, there being so many men and so few women and therefore uh, a price on the head of the two escaping girls. Um, so it's a, it is, as a writer, it's a, it's, it's a real balancing act that you need to do because you... I, I didn't want the I didn't want the novel to be about the dystopia. I didn't want it to be about that. I just wanted that as the backdrop to a character-driven novel. So um, there, I'm sure there'll be some people who are right into post-apocalyptic dystopian stuff and will be will say, "Oh, I wish you'd explain that more about what had actually happened." But um, I just wanted to get it out there, put it aside, and then say, "How do these three kids?" operate and in survive. this new world and survive. Yeah. You've also then got 
the Wilders and Ramage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's another group. Who are they and what are they? Yeah, the Wilders. Uh, Ramage heads a group of men who who control the country to the north of the town where where Finn is. The town that Finn's in has been quarantined because it was a hot spot for the virus. And um, but Ramage is a ruthless a ruthless man who is actually enslaved, ca- in, captured and enslaved. Uh, asylum seekers and other kids just off farms who've lost their parents um, and he operates out of this town called Longley um, and he's spreading his influence across the countryside. You've also got another group out there, a community farm mm. sort of thing. What's going on there? There's a group that have that have sort of hidden away in a valley uh, and it's a farming community of about 15 people or so and um, they've managed to stay out of the way of ramage, you know, sort of unseen. They've been self-sufficient in this valley uh, and it's uh, Finn finds his way uh, yeah. to them for for a certain reason. Yeah, for certain yeah. reasons. Now you've you've got this backdrop, and and many of these are sort of traditional tropes of survival. The the sort of evil group, yeah. uh, the 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 community group that in fact could become or has the potential to become a bit fundamental yeah. in, in in outlook and the individual yeah. sort of thing. How do you make because they're consistently used in sort of dystopian novels. How do you make it original, therefore? Yeah, it, it is difficult. It's a really difficult balancing act to, to make it original. Um, I think you I think you do it by focusing on the individual characters and the traits of those. I mean, you can, as with any novel, you can read into it what you want to read into it. And if you want to look at it as a as a sort of a, a you know a microcosm of, of humanity, if you like, the good, the evil, the um, and the choices that people make, you can read it in that way. Uh, but it's on top of all of that, and I think above all of that, it's a story. You know, it is a story, and it's designed to carry you along. Um, and those things, those things, I think you'll come back to when you reflect on that. So, oh yeah, no, okay, I can see the way that fits. But um, my my drive was the story. Well, it drives. It does mm. drive along, mm. which in some ways gets us to this notion of how you write like this, because right from the outset, we're carried along. First, there's Finn alone and surviving and then almost immediately you start to build so you have the arrival of rose and that brings in dangers in and of itself so what are you trying to build up here look uh i guess as as in the process of writing it uh it's not rocket science you know it is it is it is the it's the it's the hero's journey Hmm. Uh, and and it's the it's a you know very familiar trope and um, and I think it, especially for me writing my first novel, um, you know, my guiding principle was the kiss principle: keep it simple, simple stupid, stupid. Yeah. Um, and just you know carry carry your your reader along. I it's I call it an unashamed page turner. You know, and, and I've written a lot of literary fiction, um, short stories, and um, this is this is it has elements of that, but the story is what drives it. Well, each um, chapter is a story in itself mm. in some ways, but mm. then there's a little cue yeah, at the end, a little of hook, it, a little yeah, hook. Yeah. So you know, by the end of of uh, chapter one, the chapter ending, you've got to help me. She says, "Wilders, they're coming, they're tracking me," mm. and so you've got to read the next chapter yeah. to find out what's going on. Mm. But on top of that. The first thing has been Finn's survival and then something invades his space mm. and then it becomes a quest, yeah. uh, so to speak. Um, 
So we have the inciting incident, the inciting incident being, you know, the arrival of Rose and the, yep. the upset of everything that Finn understood as being, you know, the way that he was going to survive, um, albeit the fact that he was incredibly lonely and he yearned companionship. Um, so that influences his decision then, you know, once this inciting incident occurs um, and heads him off on his journey. And basically uh, one of the things, well, he's got to protect Rose, but another thing then is that Rose has a sister, Kaz, and he's got to find her, almost an impossible yeah. task in many ways, but he takes it on. Yeah, uh, I think it says a lot about, uh, and I was really, you know, this character, I, I'm a total pantser when I write, like I just make it up as I go along. And total pantser, by the seat of your pants. <laughs> by the seat of the pants, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, um, and these characters just sort of took me in places and sometimes they'd sort of, they take me to these places and almost turn back and laugh at me and say, all right, you've written yourself into a corner now, now write yourself out of it, you know. So you deliberately planning or not planning? Not what? planning. Not, not planning. planning. It's just where it goes. And, and it's, um, and you know, it's, there are, sometimes it takes you to a place that you can't write your way out of and you have to backtrack and sort of turn it around. But, uh, but yeah, not, not a great deal of planning going right. into it. You're listening to uh, Mark Smith the, and talking about his first novel, The Road to Winter. Uh, we have a silent guest in our studio, Steph from Text Publishing, who has refused to answer questions on why this is a page turner. And this is 3CR mm -hmm. and published or not. And we're flying by the seat of our pants. Now, the issues that you're raising here, and because this is a page turner, an adventure, a survival story, which we're all familiar with... Are you intending those deeper issues to come out? So, for example, you have Sileys, asylum seekers. They are being sold into slavery. They have a tracking device implanted in them. Are you trying to make social comment? <laughs> uh, I don't back away from making social comment, but it's not my intent. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't write this as a message book or anything like that. And I think you, you can fall into a very deep hole if you try to write something because it becomes very transparent that that's what you're trying to do. Um, so I, I, I am passionate about asylum seeker issues. I am passionate about environmental issues, climate change. Um, and all of those issues are there in the book, but they, they, they expose gradually. And it comes out through the characters, which is most important. It's not me telling the reader this is what had has happened or this is what could happen. It comes out through those characters. Well, there's a parallel taking place here. In some ways, you've simplified an asylum story. Uh, that little mm. community uh, is endangered and somebody uh, hands their child uh, mm. over to Finn. Yeah. And... That's the asylum seeker story, although very much simplified and reduced. Yeah, and, deliberate. Uh, it was deliberate. It was it was that element of of chance, of trust, um, and of then throwing themselves on the on the mercy of other people, if you like, which is which is the asylum seeker story. Yes, and something we haven't done terribly well at. No, not at all. Addressing, if yeah. I might say, which is interesting because uh, you know. People who've read this book um, have, you know, there've been comments like, "Gee, that's that's a bit harsh," you know, that that what you're saying that asylum seekers would be bought into the country and sold at public auction, and you know, my, it's to which I answer, "Well, hang on, we are we are keeping these these people in offshore 
concentration camps effectively um, and treating them appallingly and yet you know you you take umbrage at this possible suggestion that they could be brought into the country well, and sold as slaves well s- slavery but, is actually a lesser option yeah, in terms yeah. of what we're actually doing yeah, to them it's yeah. plausible it's it is plausible and yeah. and you know yeah. looking futuristically yeah. it yeah. it's a slight yeah. Yeah. bending and what you can do is what you can do we're talking about what sort of issues are raised in there there are issues that people can can understand and then you ratchet them up a notch mm. and that's where the that's where the narrative comes in and that's where the i think the power of the story comes from is because it's something that's almost believable but not quite and then oh what would happen if you know yeah. well i mean given what's taking place in the world today it's not implausible to have such things happen no. um you know we're reducing wages for people and um you know our, our next slave labour force is well, already well. Plus, out there. if you if you look at a you look at a country town like Shepparton in Victoria, where um, which has had a large refugee intake, mm. um, and they are the people who are working in the abattoirs. They are the ones who are doing the fruit picking, you know, and in those menial jobs. Uh, which and uh, for for not very good wages that you know the sorts of jobs that Australians um, don't want to do anymore, mm. or we can't attract Australian people to do anymore. You've also got this virus. Mm. Um, yep. Now you've got Finn uh, hunting for rabbits, mm. and all of a sudden I'm I'm thinking a connection, <laughs> the Khaleesi virus, yeah. and and such yeah. like. What's going on there? Well, the virus was again. It's a, it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a plot device, I suppose. Um, but it is. How did this dystopian world, you know, end up where it is? Well, um, and it, I, we, I sort of thought about, oh, maybe it was some sort of really exotic sort of virus. It's just that it's in my mind, it was just a sort of influenza that that no one had any immunity to, hmm. uh, and that's not really explained in great detail because it doesn't need to be. It's just a virus which is principally affected women but has wiped out most of the population and, and um, led to people fleeing the, fleeing the cities and quarantine towns. Uh, so, it, it, and again, like I said, that's just forming the backdrop for the action. Um, I'm just thinking Zika virus. Yeah. Yeah. Was that in your mind at all? No, no, um, not really. I was thinking. I was thinking more. It, it is. It's. It's the banal that's going to kill us. I think. <laughs> yeah. You know? it, it, it's the thing that we don't see coming. It's not the exotic. I, well, I think we can see it coming yeah. in terms of we've got no well, we reduced immunity yeah. uh, with penicillin yeah. now to yeah. basic bacteria. I mean, the Zika virus. They're actually. They were talking of cancelling. The Olympic, the Olympics games yeah, yeah. Yeah. and therefore because of that capacity now in the world for that mass movement of people which also includes um what it was h1n1 bird flu yes. and all yeah, yeah. of these sorts of things yeah. Yeah. um and it's um you know hg wells war of the worlds the the aliens were killed by a, mm. a little virus yeah. we're, we're not that uh, so much immune ourselves uh, as we go. We've covered a lot of things mm. so far. It's been an interesting talk. The writing process. How did you get into this and how do you, you know, keep the pace yeah. uh, going in the story? I, um, in, my, in my full-time job, my real job. What's I, your real job? <laughs> my real job is that I, I run a, uh, an outdoor residential campus for a large school here in Melbourne. Right. Uh, down on the west coast of Victoria. Yep. And it's all 15-year-old boys. So I work entirely with 15-year-old boys. I've been in that headspace a lot. Um, so, and this is where they are in yep. terms of this survival yep. notion. I can remember, and I might have been about fifteen. I don't know if you've read a book, My Side of the Mountain. Yes, yeah. Lad goes off yep. 
tries to survive. Yeah. It, yeah. What's the fascination and attraction of that for fifteen-year-old boys? I think it's um, I think it's that test of of resilience. In, in a lot of ways, where, where, you know, my observations of, of 15, 16-year-olds that I work with is that, is that their resilience is, is almost taken, being taken away from them. Uh, it's been taken away by over-parenting and, and um, they're not being allowed to test themselves, you know, as individuals uh, with, with responsibility for their own decisions. And, and it's largely because we as adults make those decisions for them because we think we're protecting them. Um, but what we end up with is is young people getting to that 17, 18, 19 um, sort of age group and not having had any experience of, of risk or responsibility or decision-making that's really affected their lives. And suddenly, there they are. You know, they're behind the wheel of a car. Yeah, well, um, just one little story there. I was walking through a campus with um, a, a, another teacher who was even older than I am, and we he pointed to the bike shed um, and he said... Look at that, you know. There were two bikes there. Yeah. Years ago, that would have been full. Chuckers. The kids yeah. would have cycled their yeah. way. I yeah. can remember cycling to school. I can remember coming off my bike on a rainy day, yeah. taking a corner. The bike went one way. I went another. <laughs> Gravel rash. You've yeah. got to have... Yeah. Those experiences of danger, you do, and and it's one of the things that I, I look back at the you know the difference between my childhood and the childhood that these that these young boys are having at the moment, and they are worlds apart. Um, mm. And from the time, you know, from the time I was ten, eleven, my parents were saying, "Get outside, you know, go. I don't want to see you till dinner time." And and you go roaming and adventuring and exploring, and the whole time you are learning mm. by osmosis about risk about consequence because you stuff up, you know, mm. you break bones, you, you know, you do stupid things, you climb trees and you fall out of trees, and all you, of those things. And happen. you haven't grown up because no. you've broken your finger. <laughs> just, oh, he's just waving that around. He's just waving his little pinky yeah. around. Mark broke his yeah. finger yeah. the other yeah. week mm. when he went surfing, climbing down a cliff yeah. and uh, fell down and broke his finger. But it hasn't affected his writing. None whatsoever. No, no, no effect. Back to the writing process. Yeah. Uh, what... What's your regimen, so to speak? Uh, my regimen is that it's it's you know people ask what's the what's the secret to good writing and it's just discipline and, there's, and no one wants to hear it. It's just hard work. It's just bloody hard work. You've got to sit down and you've got to make yourself do it. Um, and I'm very lucky in that my kids are uh, older now and they've left home, so have have more time. I've got access to some fantastic little. Uh, my sister owns a little shack down on the on the east coast of Tasmania that I can just go down to and have to myself for weeks at a time. I can write. Um, I try and I try and write for you know two three hours in a block, but I can't do that every day. I'm not that sort. I'm not that disciplined, mm. and I have another job as well, and I need to go surfing and do all the other things that that sort of keep me out there and fit um, but uh, the process itself I once the hard thing about this novel about writing it the single hardest thing was every time you come back to it you've got to find that voice again mm. um, and if you um, it, if you can't you can't continue on so every time I would sit down at the desk I'd have to reread just the last section that I'd written pick up the voice again and get back into that head of the 16 year old boy because also you've got the acknowledgements page where uh, it all laid out mm. and therefore this uh, 
book has been through several drafts, so that process would happen again and again and yeah. again. Yeah, that's right. It's like I always think it's like uh, I liken it to you know you run a marathon and you get to the end of the marathon and they say oh well, you better go back to the start again and you go through again and then you go back to the start again and you go through again and it is a collaborative process because you've got to have people that you can share the writing with and who will give you genuine, honest critical feedback it's useless giving it to members of your family don't bother just <laughs> give it to give it to the people that you trust um and the probably my, my big learning about that was don't give it to other writers give it really? to readers because other writers are writing they don't have time to read well, your I'm, manuscript i'm, I'm, I'm working I'm, on their own i'm just wondering know? if they'd be jealous <laughs> no no i've got a fantastic group of uh of friends who are writers and we're all seem to be sort of emerging at the same time mm. at the moment which is which is great uh, and I do get feedback from them, but I can't expect them to sit down and read a whole yeah, manuscript. I wouldn't wouldn't do that to them. Yeah, it, it would uh, be a little too much. Mm. But, yeah, how many drafts then would you have gone through? Uh, tough. I, I finished the first draft in 10 months, and then I probably did another four drafts before I showed it, before I submitted it. Mm. So it took you know, about 18 months altogether from go to work. Yeah, and I'm just wondering then, a sequel? There is a sequel, um, and I've actually got a USB in my pocket, <laughs> which has uh, this third into the third draft of the sequel. So right, because uh, there's a uh, hook at yeah. the end in mm. in the last chapter, yeah. as if the quest, uh, in a different shape or form, has to continue. Mm. Yeah, it's so. actu it's actually I actually I'm lucky enough to have a three book deal with text, so um, I'm not sure whether it will extend to a trilogy or not. But which it's which brings us which brings us back to the silent uh, person <laughs> in this interview, uh, in terms of will uh, text be then offering a reader guarantee on the next book? And and Steph's just <laughs> shrugging her shoulders. Thank you for coming in today, Steph. You've been a great bonus. And Mark, thank you for coming in. Uh, the book is called The Road to Winter by Mark Smith. And if you hadn't guessed, text publishing, and it's a great read, a guaranteed great read, or your money back. So thank you one and all for listening, and we will head out now.